Well, it's great to be back here again tonight to study the Word of God and to learn what we have before us. We are continuing our study of the minor prophets, and I just want to say at the outset, thank you to all the guys who have participated in this study thus far. It has been refreshing, really, for me in many ways to be sitting out there and receiving and listening from the Word of God. And I trust it's been a refreshment to them as well as they have had the opportunity to do their own Bible study, hone their own Bible study skills, and for all of us to have the opportunity to be refreshed by their gifts as they have edified us through their own studies. So I just want to say thank you to them tonight as we begin. Would you just bow with me in a word of prayer as we begin? Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, it is uh, an amazing reality that we can come to your word as people fallen in Adam, lost without hope, now having the ability to understand what your word says because you, out of your gracious mercy and kindness, chose to save us. And that here we are. We are tonight together, opening your word, looking into your word that was written thousands of years ago and yet still so relevant for today. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the ability through your spirit to understand these things, to gain wisdom from them to be encouraged and challenged by them, and to be equipped for greater love and good deeds through them. So We ask you to attend to our time. Allow your spirit to move upon us in miraculous ways, in ways that cause us to grow. That we would be children of yours, blameless in your sight, and honoring to your name and in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around. Until the day you come, when we will see you face to face. We thank you for tonight. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have been learning through our study of the Minor Prophets, and I, I hope you will take your own time to go through them individually on your own, especially those that we have gone through up to this time, in order that you can glean from them even more than what we have had the tendency to do over our time, and that is cover one book in one night over the several months that we have been doing this. And tonight we are turning our attention to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the final prophet in the minor prophets that have been given to us by God in the canon of Scripture. And his prophecy, as you know, is located just before Matthew. So it's the final book of the Old Testament. It is right before Matthew, and in similar fashion with all of the other prophets that we call minor prophets that God sent to Israel, Malachi's prophecy is a warning about sin, about sin. And like any warning concerning sin, any warning for our own life, anytime we come into Scripture and we read the warnings about sinfulness, Malachi's prophecy like any warning about sin, 
is intent to bring about true repentance in those who hear it. That is his intent. That is his desire. That is why God sends him to Israel to say what he must say, what he has been inspired by God to say, so that Israel would be repentful, that they would repent of their sin. Now, I, I, I chose Malachi for myself. The guys, when we sent out the list, when I asked some guys if they wanted to participate in this, and they said yes, and I said, pick the ones you want, and so guys were picking them. I picked Malachi because it's somewhat precious to me and my own extended family, simply because I have a grandson named Malachi, and his name means my messenger or my angel. That's that's the name Malachi, what it means in the original language. And of course, it's my prayer as Malachi's grandfather that he'll grow up to be just that, a faithful messenger of God. We're yet to see where that takes him. But the history of the book of Malachi's prophecy was written between sometime between 450 and 400 BC, which was during the time of the ministry and leadership of Nehemiah, much like Haggai's ministry that we heard about a few weeks ago. So about a hundred years or so after the first exile uh, to come back to Jerusalem from Babylon, Malachi is prophesying to Israel. And we can assume from both the timing of his prophecy and the words that we find here in his prophecy in a couple places, that temple worship was already being restored or already had been restored in Jerusalem. Notice in chapter 1, it says in verse 6, A son honors his father, a servant his master. Then if I'm your father, where is my honor? If I'm your master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how are we despising your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. There you get the idea that there is a sacrificial system back in place, i.e. The, the, the temple has already been restored. And you, you can read all the way down through uh, the end of that chapter, and you get this idea and this understanding that the temple is already in place, right? Cursed be the swindler, verse 14, who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am the great king. So temple worship has been established, reestablished back in the nation of Israel, back in Jerusalem. Over in chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. So even there, God is telling Israel through Malachi to bring the sacrifice. And so the, the, the restoration of temple worship has been happening. It has been going on for some time. We knew when Chris told us in Haggai the temple was being neglected in the building of the temple. Well, now it has already been built and the temple is... Uh, reinstituted all of those realities about worship. But even though temple worship had been restored among the people, there were serious problems in the heart and mind and, uh, of the people and of the priests when in Israel in reference to worship. And so Malachi's prophecy takes the form of this continuous dialogue between God and Israel 
as God confronts them about this sin. And there are six sections, if you go through the 55 verses in this prophecy, there are six sections that make up this entire prophecy of Malachi. And you can go through and in your own time label them how you want to, and they can be labeled in all kinds of different ways, but but I've chosen to label them like this. Here's the six sections that, that I've labeled them. Number one is God's love is proven. God's love is proven. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. God's love proven. And then chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9 is God's leaders are reproved. God's leaders are reproved. Chapter 2, verse 10 through verse 16, God's institution is perverted. God's institution is perverted. And then in verses chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 6, God's messenger is pronounced. God's messenger is pronounced. Number 5, chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 12, is God's worship is put aside. God's worship is put aside. And then number 6, the final one, chapter 3, three verse 13 through the end of chapter 4, God's eternal judgment is proclaimed. God's eternal judgment is proclaimed. And you notice the very last verse of Malachi's prophecy is not a, ver- a word that we love to hear. Right? I, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Final word of the Old Testament as we have it is the word curse. Now, for our time tonight, I want us to focus our attention on just the first of those six sections. Just the first of those six sections. And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. One is that I am intending personally, after we finish hearing from all of the guys who are preaching through the prophets, to return to Malachi's prophecy because there are practical implications for us in all of those six sections, and so I want to preach through Malachi, or finish preaching through Malachi, touching on all six of those sections. So that's one reason why we're only going to focus on this first one. But secondly, I want to focus on this first section, because Malachi's first message is the theme of his entire prophecy. It is the theme of his entire flow of thought throughout this entire prophecy, which is found in verse 2, which says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever been sitting on the beach or sitting in a park or sitting somewhere and you look up in the sky and there's a a plane flying by with a tow banner behind it and it's reading something on the banner. And if there ever was a plane flying over the people of Israel and it is towing a banner behind it that is echoing the content of Malachi's message, that would be on the banner. It might say, my cover over you is love. God's love is proven. And so tonight I want us to just notice what he says to them and talk about the love of God in our time tonight. Notice what Malachi says to Israel by means of God 
through his servant here, right? God is speaking and Malachi is the instrument. So this is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. It's not the oracle of Malachi. It's not something he wrote, something he made up. This is Malachi the messenger, the oracle of the Lord to Israel through him. This is God's message. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now this is the message of God through Malachi to the people. And this is a message concerning the unrelenting love of God for those who are His. The unrelenting love of God for His chosen ones. The Hebrew verb that means to love in the Hebrew language is the word pronounced ahab, ahab. It's used 32 times in the Old Testament, the verb form of that word, and it always describes God's love. And 23 of those 32 times, it speaks of God's love for Israel or for some particular person specifically. When you go to the noun form of that word, which means God's love for his people in a, in a general sense, it's used four times in the, new, in the Old Testament. So in total, that makes 27 times that this word is used in the Old Testament. Out of 32 times that we see the word, it's specifically for Israel or 84% of the time the Old Testament demonstrates God's love for his chosen human creation. And it's instructive for us, I think, to hear that and to know that when we think of the love of God, when we are considering the love of God, we need to understand that the love of God cannot be separated from who God is. When we think about the love of God, we cannot think of it as something that is outside or something that is, that is just a, an emotion of God. The Bible declares to us that God is love. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. 1 John 4.16, so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now that's simply saying by the Apostle John there in 1 John that God's love is a sovereign love. It is a sovereign love. In other words, since God is Lord of and creator of all things, he is not required 
to do anything except that which flows from his nature. God isn't required to do anything except what comes from who he is by his very nature. And therefore, since God is love, then there can be no definition of God's love that separates him from what he is and therefore what he does. It is love. It isn't a a piece of him. It isn't a part of him. It isn't an emotion expressed by him. It is him. He is that. That is his very essence. And therefore, because God is loved, his expressed love, get this, is an unconditional love. It must be unconditional because it is God's love. What do I mean when we say unconditional? Well, I mean that the only motivation for God loving anything at all comes entirely from Him and not from the object to which He is loving. The only motivation that, that by which God loves anything, the only motivation comes from Him and not in any way from the object in which He is loving. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, I think clearly points us in that direction in Moses' words to Israel. He says this, It was not, God says through Moses, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's saying it wasn't motivated by you. There was nothing in God that God saw in you that motivated him to do what he did for you and launch out this rescue mission upon you it was simply because God is love. And so God's love is a sovereign love. It is an unconditional love, but it's also an intimate personal love. It's also an intimate and personal love. In other words, in spite of the fact that God is Lord of heaven and Lord of all the earth and to whom all things belong, he has divinely chosen to place his love upon us. Years ago, C.S. Lewis, the noted author that many of us have read his books, compared God's love to the love between a husband and wife. You say, well, in what way? Well, here's what he said. Well, in the way that a husband and a wife are willing to forgive each other, because real love is willing to love beyond any faults, and at the same time, that love is willing to encourage the strengthening of weaknesses because love, while continuing to forgive, still wants to see the best in the other person. I hope you understand what he's saying. I, I think that's helpful for us to think about when we think about the love of God in relation to us because God's continually offering forgiveness to us and yet, at the same time, he never lessens his holy standard of righteousness. 
God continually is offering forgiveness, and yet at the same time, he wants our best. He is still never lessening his righteous standard. So just as a husband and wife relationship, there is this love that forgives. The standard of being what we ought to be is never lessened. Right? So there is this realistic and ordained tension that God has between forgiveness, which overlooks, and righteous standards that command greater and greater obedience. And so it is with the tension between God forgiving and God requiring, right? That that relationship between a husband and wife in a similar way and yet a much lesser way, because we fail it all the time, God never fails, this Tension between God forgiving and God requiring. And I think that helps us understand the love of God, that it is a unique love. Now, why do I say all that? Because understanding that idea about the love of God helps us when we look at the book of Malachi. It helps us when we look at the book of Malachi because God calls for justice to be meted out on Israel for their sin. You read through Malachi from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, and there's this, there's this judgment theme that runs through this. God is calling for justice to be carried out upon those whom he loves. And so that's why he begins in verse 2 with God saying, I have loved you. We understand there are a lot of people today who have a great affinity for the love of God. Talk a lot about it. God is love. But they don't know how to reconcile that with the righteous standard of God or the exercise of the anger of God over sin. How do I reconcile the love of God with the wrath or the anger of God? And part of our problem is how we define anger how we look at anger, because anger from our perspective and experience is associated with some desire for retribution, isn't it? We we desire to lash out. We desire to get back at someone. We want to have our pound of flesh taken out of them. That's, That's how the world around us defines justice. We see that going on all over the place today in our world. The entire social justice movement today is built on that premise. We got to get our pound of justice out of somebody who somehow throughout the ages might have done something that I assume or even maybe truly was wrong. Someone did something and another has to therefore pay for it with some kind of ongoing penitence, ongoing reparations that must ongo and ongo and ongo, or there is no justice. That's how man defines it. That is not God's. God's anger is not like that. God's anger is not retaliatory. God's anger is the legitimate expression against all things evil. God's anger is the legitimate expression against all things evil. Why? Because just as God is love, God is righteous and holy. Just as God is love, God is also righteous and holy. And so God's anger must be expressed against anything that comes against his righteousness. His anger is an expression of resistance against evil. 
the repulsion of it, the, the I cannot look on evil in any kind of way idea or any kind of unrighteousness. His very nature and character expels that with the fury of righteous judgment. And in comparison to his love, fortunately, his fury passes rather quickly. The Bible tells us that his love, what? Endures forever. His love endures forever. And that's the message of Malachi. I do love you, Israel. My love endures forever with you. And in verse 1 to 5, Malachi proclaims three evidences of God's love. Three evidences of God's love that give more than sufficient reason for any person, any person, but specifically here in Malachi, Israel, disobedient Israel, those who have gone astray in their obedience, Malachi gives evidence that gives sufficient reason to repent and return to God. So what are these evidences? What are the three evidences? I'll just list them for you, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, God's election love. God's election love, verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. God's election love. Number two, God's justice love. God's justice love, the second part of verse 3 all the way through verse 4. And then lastly, number three, God's universal love in verse 5. So you have God's election love, God's justice love, and God's universal love. So let's begin then with the first one that gives any person who has gone astray reason to repent and return to God. This is God's election love. The Lord says to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not... Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation. I've hated Esau. This is God's message to disobedient Israel. This is the first thing that God says to a nation who has reinstituted the worship of him and yet are having all kinds of problems in their Worship, I love you. This is the Lord's message for his people. It's a message of proven love in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that judgment for sin is being promised throughout this prophecy. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to carry this out. I'm going to be consistent to that. And yet you must understand that I love you. Some of us are even hearkening back probably in our own childhood to when our parents said that to us when they were about ready to chastise us for something we did wrong. I love you. Malachi is saying that God is going to come and that he is going to judge. He's going to carry out punishment. And that message is meant to stir them up. That message is meant to to grab their attention, to grab them by their shirt tails, if they will. It's meant to cause them to prepare for that day. Prepare for the day 
of judgment. And so here Malachi is stirring up the nation of Israel as a whole to be ready for judgment. How? By means of repentance. Get yourself ready when God comes. Get ready for judgment. And how are you going to do that? By means of repentance. So in verse 2, God declares first his electing love. Because like us, when we were children, we say, well, I don't know about you loving me, mom or dad, because this is going to hurt me. We sound just like Israel. But you say, verse 2, how have you loved us? God says to Israel, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. Was not Jacob and Esau brothers? Now, if we were all trained in the Hebrew language, and particularly Hebrew grammar, then we would know that this is spoken of in what is known as a perfect tense. I don't mean to necessarily take us back to 10th grade grammar class, but we need this for our own understanding. This is a perfect tense idea. What does that mean? simply means that there is an action that has been accomplished and there are ongoing results that carry out into the future because of that action. There are ongoing, never-ending ramifications. God says, I have loved you. That's a perfect tense. They say, how? And God says, well, here's, here's how. In other words, God wants Israel to know in time past that he pronounced his love for them and then that love will continue in spite of their current disobedience. Now that's comforting. That's comforting. That sounds much like you and I, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, we are saved in Christ, we are positionally secure in Christ, and God in Christ is saying to us, I have loved you. In spite of your current disobedience, in spite of your sin, in spite of today, in spite of your failures, the last hour, the last minute, the last second, I have loved you. I, there, are, there are never-ending ramifications of my love for you. In other words, I didn't begin to love you because of who you were. I did not begin to love you because of how you were living at a time God's saying to Israel, I didn't begin to love you because you were something that smelled good, something that I liked, something that I looked down through the annals of time. It's simply because I chose to love. Therefore, that love would continue in spite of your disobedience even now. Why is that so important? It's important to know because disobedience and sin can cause us to wonder, doesn't it? Anytime we sin, anytime we're doing something that we know as believers because we've read the Word of God, because we've been discipled, because we've been Christians for some time, we know that it's not right to do that. And so when we sin, it can cause us to wonder if, if God actually does love us. Why? Because sin confuses reality. Sin confuses reality. I preached it some time ago out of Psalm 2, right? Sin makes man so stupid. It confuses reality. And so when we're disobedient and therefore in need of the chastening hand of God, the loving chastening hand of God, we can begin to wonder if we're actually loved by Him. We begin to wonder if we are His child. We can begin to be just like Israel in their disobedience. You begin to ask the question that they asked, how have you loved me? 
I mean, prove it to me, God. Prove to me that you actually do love me. Listen, this is what's wrong thinking about God. When we think wrongly about God, this is exactly what it does. It takes us places whereby we begin to redefine God by our own terms. And what we've really done is we've manufactured a God of our own making. You say, how is that? Well, we begin to look at God and define His love in the way that everyone else defines love so often. By emotion, by feelings. We become so blinded by our own sin, so blinded by our own guilt, that we begin to demand that God show us and prove to us that He actually does love us. So what does God do? What does God do? What does God's love do? Well, here in the text, God actually answers and condescends to Israel's question. Of course, we understand God's raising the question, but God knows the heart of man. He knows this is the heart of Israel. He knows they're asking this question. Really? Prove it to us as Malachi is speaking to them. God knows that, and God actually answers the question. And by the way, just that is a further illustration of his love. He could treat us just like he did Job at one time, which was love as well. Who has darkened the counsel of my, my, my counsel? Answer me these questions, and then I'll tell you about my love for you. But he doesn't do that. And so how does God answer them? He answers them by pointing out his election love. His election love. Notice what he says. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Now, we don't, in our American Western mind, we don't quickly understand all that's going on there in, in every way, but God is showing them, we'll talk about this in a minute, God is showing them his electing love by reminding them of his non-election of the one who is in the proper place in the birth order. He says to them, was not Esau Jacob's brother Esau was the oldest, Jacob was not the oldest, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, obviously, when we read those words and we see the word hate, all kinds of things goes off in our minds. Because in our own fallenness, we begin to think of hate in our own terms and from a human perspective. But when we hear it in the terms of God's electing love, when we have that word in a juxtaposition with the love of God, and yet we see the hatred of God, then we are better served if we think of it in terms of his preference or to think less of. It's probably a better idea. To think less of. Jesus, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, talking about discipleship, says this, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we understand there that Jesus is not saying go out and hate people. He's not saying go out and, and treat them in some kind of wicked, evil way. 
by hey, Jesus did not mean what is often described in our world as this emotional outburst at some kind of resentment or in some kind of resentful way and personal hurt against somebody else. Now, what Jesus was talking about was allegiance. What he's talking about is who is more important. And we understand that because of the final words in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, when he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's what he's talking about, this allegiance, this, this holding on to other things that are of greater importance of greater value than Jesus Christ. He said all those things have to have a lesser value. So Jesus is talking about preference. He's talking about ranking. He's talking about our, our drive and desire. Nothing else can have that greater drive than Christ. And so when God tells Israel here about his love for them by means of his hatred for Esau, he is saying my hatred for Esau is not a sign to you that of my disdain or disgust or even desire for revenge against Esau. He said, it's simply a choice of mine, a choice of mine that is based upon my desire for one over the other, not because of who they were, but simply because of who I am. In other words, it's his electing love. His electing love of one over the other was only a sovereign, unconditional, intimately personal love that flowed from his nature alone. But there was more than just his electing love. There was his justice love. His justice love. In other words, as the outcome, right? As an outcome of God's electing love, even wicked Israel was and is still around when they should have been consumed. In fact, notice over in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, had I not chosen to love you, guess what would have happened to you because of your disobedience to me? You would have been consumed. In other words, the only reason that you're still around is because of my electing love upon you. That's the only reason. Because in contrast, he says, just take a look at your brother. Take a look at Edom. Take a look at Edom. He says, yet I have hated Esau and have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. You will not. I will tear them down. You may build, but I will tear them down. You may, men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Now that's God's justice love on display. How could they even doubt? How could Israel even doubt the reality of God's love for them when they look around at what had happened to Edom? The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. 
That's who they are. Now, it's, it's not possible for us in reading Malachi and even looking at this passage with, with every intent magnifying glass that we can, it's not possible for us to determine what destruction of Edom that is being referred to here in Malachi. Because there were two destructions of Edom. One was under Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. that Jeremiah 49 talks about. And the other was its destruction at the hands of the Nabataeans sometime between 550 and 400 B.C. We're not sure which one Malachi is referring to, but what we are sure of is that the Edomites, descendants of Esau, could hardly have been surprised that it came. You say, why so? Because God called Jacob, and he did not call Esau to his election service or because of his electing love. He did not call Esau. Both nations, Israel and Edom, were commanded to walk in righteousness. They both grew up in the same household under their father, both commanded to do the right thing. The standard was no different. And yet Edom chose to be godless in his living. He chose to give up his birthright. He chose to sell it. Just listen to what the Bible says, Genesis 25, verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm, not, I, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He hated being in that position. He hated his place. He hated to have to be called to, to be the second in the generation or the third in the generation behind his father. He hated to have to be the one who followed that. And then it says in Genesis 36 verse 1, these are the generations of Esau or Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibuan, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaoth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basemath bore Reuel. And Olabama bore Jeshu and Jalam and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And in verse 6 of that same chapter it says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Right? Here's what it says in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one falls to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. But you know, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. You see, God's love demands punishment for sin. That's why Edom was punished. 
And yet at the same time, God never abandoned them. God never abandoned them. Had he done that, there would have been no reason for his justice as a way of calling them back. But they found no reason to repent, no desire, even though they refused him and he was calling them back through all the trouble that he brought down their way. They rejected him. They even tried to rebuild. Why? Because that's what sinful pride does. It says in verse 4, they may build. God says, I'll tear it down. Sinful pride tries to do that. I'll do it myself. Rather than humble itself, tries to do it without God. The only end is failure again. God tears it down. You try to build on your own righteousness. You try to build on your own life. You try to build according to your own works. God just dismantles that. It doesn't work. Just like Edom, sin leaves its mark and causes the scars on the people and on the land. Notice it says, and men will call them wicked. They will be the wicked territory. The wicked territory. The people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God's love reflected in righteousness. His love reflected in righteousness means that he must hate evil. And therefore, while God exercised his election love to Israel, God exercised his justice love to Edom. And then Malachi gives us this third evidence, this last evidence of God's love, and it's God's universal love. Verse 5 says, And your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. It's interesting, had Israel looked beyond their own privilege, the privileged position that they were in, they would have seen a massive contrast between what had happened to Edom and what had happened to them. If they would have looked at it with the eyes of repentance, if they would have looked at it with the eyes of understanding that God does love them, they would have noticed a massive contrast between their outcome and the outcome of Edom. The difference between Israel's trouble and Edom's trouble was massive, and the only thing that was different was God's love. God's electing love on one and God's justice love on the other. In fact, God declares through Malachi, that a day would come when they would see the difference and they would magnify the Lord beyond Israel's borders. The Lord will be magnified beyond the border of Israel. What is Malachi saying? What is God saying through Malachi? Well, I believe that he's declaring to Israel and to all of us that God's love goes beyond all boundaries. God's love isn't just for Israel. It goes to all boundaries. And of course, we know that from the New Testament as well as our own experience than God loving us by his electing grace. In other words, his love isn't for one nation. It isn't one for one political group. It isn't in one place in the world or for one culture. It is for every tongue, tribe, and nation. God promised to Abraham that through his seed all nations would be blessed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul said that that was the good news, in fact. Here's what it says. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Right there to Abraham, before Israel ever was, God was preaching this reality that is being proclaimed through Malachi. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so God brought judgment upon Edom through his justice love, just as he brought judgment on other nations, so that they and all of mankind might know and understand fully that he is the great king, and his name is to be feared among all nations. He is to be feared. He is the great king. In fact, notice verse 14, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. God may have focused his love on Israel in an electing way, and all the world was to hear of God's love through them. But he did not limit his love only to Israel. God reached out even to us. He reached out to you and I that we might know him, that we might hear of him, that we might hear of his love. And therefore, like Israel, we should not take the love of God for granted and act like it was owed to us. We should not look at the love of God and what God does in our life by way of his, his good blessings and by way of those that challenge us to love him even more as if he owes us something. He owes us nothing. God's love is mysteriously great. And it's freely given as a gift from his gracious hand. And so God says to Israel, I have loved you. I have loved you. And what's the greatest display of my love? I chose you. I chose you. And even though I'm going to bring judgment upon you, I want you to know that my judgment is from a loving hand. I have loved you, and that will not end. And that's why he says in chapter 4, And I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Why? Because my heart is not to come and smite you. It's not to bring a curse upon you. My desire is to come as a father to his children to love you even with greater abundance. And so this is the message of Malachi. This is the, the theme that runs through. I have loved you forever. And I think that's the theme that we need to focus on for our Time tonight, that idea, that reality of God's electing love for us flows from his very nature and who he is. It is not emotional. It is not sentimental. It is not 
this fluffy kind of flowery Hallmark card kind of thing that we call love in America. It is a con unconditional, sovereign love that he placed on us simply because of who he is. And we cannot change that. And oh, how comforting that is. Is it not? Comforting to know that God, while he is a loving father and at times has to deal with us in severe ways, his love never fades. Never fades. Well, we're going to get to, that's a start. We're going to get to the rest of that over, over time, but that's a start. That's kind of a, a jumping off point. And we'll see the rest of it over time when we get there. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for Malachi, thankful for the message that you brought through him, thankful for the great privilege that we can know the truth of it in our own life because of your electing love for us. Thank you that you have shown Israel that you chose them and oh, the tragedy of rejecting you. The tragedy of anyone rejecting you simply because of their own arrogance and the sinfulness of the heart. Lord, we pray that we, if that be us, we would repent of that, turn to you, knowing that your love is never ending and that we are secure in that love because it's from you, the one who is unchanging. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you do not change, for if you change, we would be consumed. So use these things as an encouragement in our heart, Lord. Cause us to be strengthened by them, encouraged by them, secured and fortified in them, and allow them to be used as a catalyst in our life to draw us to repentance when we sin. Thanking you for the forgiveness that you bring through Jesus Christ, knowing that he is love personified. So we ask your blessing on this week and the rest of our night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.